this is Marianne Webb, Managing Editor for MedTech Insight. Welcome to our podcast on Getting Personal, where we talk to MedTech industry leaders and experts about their careers, but also pull the curtain back to get a little bit more personal. Last October, I had the great pleasure to speak with the then Chief Medical Officer for Boston Scientific's Cardiac Rhythm Management Division, Dr. Ken Stein. After 13 years of leading Boston Scientific's CRM division, he has assumed a new role as Boston Scientific's Global Chief Medical Officer. In this podcast, we talk about his own diagnosis with atrial fibrillation and advice for others living with the disease, innovative technologies in development at Boston Scientific, and some of his proudest and more challenging times on the job. He also provides advice for other physicians who are contemplating a move into the corporate world. Dr. Stein, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You've obviously dedicated your career to helping improve the lives of people who are living with atrial fibrillation, but you gained a new perspective in 2018 when you yourself were diagnosed with the disease. So I was hoping to start off maybe with an explanation of what AFib is exactly, and then talk about your own personal experience with AFib. Thank you, Marianne. And it, there have been maybe more trials than fibrillations. It, it, it has been an interesting journey, you know. And, and as you say, my, I trained uh, as a cardiologist and then as a cardiac electrophysiologist uh, you know, so branch cardiology is quite specializing in the management of, of arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. And it, it's certainly, you know, very different, you know, what you know about a disease versus the, the emotions that you have when you actually experience it yourself. Uh, maybe again, to start by answering your question. So, so what is atrial fibrillation? Uh, and so I think as, as everyone knows, the heart has four chambers. There are two upper chambers called the atria. And then two bottom chambers called the ventricles. And the bottom chambers, the ventricles, do the bulk of the work of actually pumping blood forward. Uh, but electrical activity in the heart, the heartbeat, starts in the upper chambers, the atria. And so normally there's a very organized and sequential activation of the heart muscle. And the top chambers beat and then the bottom in order. And what happens in atrial fibrillation is you lose that orderly electrical activity in the upper chambers of the heart. So the, the upper chambers of the heart beat rapidly and in an uncoordinated fashion. They're basically just just quivering. Mm-hmm. And and that can have a number of impacts on, on patients like me. Uh, the heartbeat can become very rapid. The heartbeat can become very irregular. And so that can cause symptoms. People can experience palpitations. Although some people are completely unaware that they're in atrial fibrillation. Uh, and that can impair the heart's pumping ability, so people can get short of breath, people can get fatigued easily. Um, but the other concern with atrial fibrillation is that if it lasts long enough, because the upper chambers aren't pumping blood efficiently, uh, you can get blood clots that can form in the upper left chamber of the heart in an area called the left atrial appendage. And if a clot was, was to form and then dislodge and get expelled into the general circulation, that can result in a disaster like a, a stroke or a heart attack. And, and so as physicians, right, you know, the importance of atrial fibrillation is twofold. You know, one is for people where it is causing symptoms, managing the symptoms. 
But the second is, for anyone who's at high risk for that kind of blood clot formation and stroke, doing doing something to help reduce that risk of stroke. And what is that something, for instance? Are you on medications, or can you talk a little bit about your own diagnosis? Yeah. And how right. you and actually I'm, found out that you had AFib? That would be great. Yeah, let's, let's start with that. I, I, uh, uh, I, and and I, again, I'm very deliberately, very public about my experience with atrial fibrillation. It's, yeah, I'm sure I'm not unique in being the only physician to have a disease, but it, I think it does give you an ability to you know talk to other people. And I certainly respect people who want to maintain their their medical privacy. But but for me, I, I think this is a way, hopefully, that I, I can help other people who you know may eventually experience something like this. Uh, and and so I discovered I had atrial fibrillation. I uh, this is probably a, a I don't know a professional. Say shortcoming. I always wear a heart rate monitor when I exercise. I'm a pretty avid cyclist, and I was doing uh, actually working on a bike trainer uh, here in my basement where I am now, uh, and uh, noticed that my heart rate spiked higher than it usually would while I was cycling. And so I stopped cycling and noticed on the heart rate monitor that it was still rapid, and so I realized I got a problem, and made it. And it didn't come down, and then I checked my pulse, and it was rapid, and it was irregular, and I, I felt that, that that it was unusual. And uh, at that point, I just said, all right, I, I've got atrial fibrillation. I called my cardiologist, and I said to him, I think I'm going to have atrial fibrillation. He said, well, you need an EKG. I said, well, I take my pulse, and it's rapid, and it's irregular. I, I know this is atrial fibrillation. I, I'm not going to drive an hour into the hospital to get an EKG. And he said, well, if, if it doesn't go away, I want you to do that. And it stopped, fortunately, on its own after a little while. Uh, but then we talked, and I, I went and you know, got one of these devices where you can hook up to an iPhone uh, and check your EKG. And, and the next time I had an episode of palpitations, I checked my EKG via the iPhone, and it was atrial fibrillation. And you know, th- this was several years ago, and our, and our approach... I think to managing people with AFib a bit different today than it was. Uh, I am not in a category where I'd be at risk for stroke. Uh, you know, and, and for people with AFib who are at increased risk of stroke, basically the, the options for management are either chronic use of blood thinning medications uh, or uh, a device, uh, what's called left atrial appendage closure. And you know, we, we had the, the first and, and by far the leading device for doing that at Boston Scientific was a device called Watchman, and then the current generation is a device called Watchman Flex. But again, that was not particularly an issue for me. For me, the issue was managing symptoms. Uh, and so I went through a variety of different trials of changing my lifestyle. You know, you know what you find is you, you're always trying to figure out what triggered the last episode. Uh, and, and so... You know, I, I do a lot of travel and don't necessarily always get a lot of sleep in my job. Uh, tried tried to moderate that a little bit. That didn't help. Uh, avoided caffeine. That turned out not to help. Avoided alcohol altogether. That didn't help. Uh, you know, and, and kind of went through everything I could conceivably do in terms of lifestyle modification. Kept having these episodes. Then tried a couple of different medications. Kept on having the episodes. And so eventually I, I went for a procedure called a catheter ablation. And ablation is, a again, a, a uh, minimally invasive, it's not open heart procedure. It's, it's, it's done via catheters introduced 
into the heart via the, the veins in the legs, where you know the uh, the electrophysiologist, who is actually a uh, someone who I trained, goes ahead and you know basically uh, you know, cauterizes or freezes away the tissue that's responsible for the atrial fibrillation. Uh, and, and I had that done a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, thankfully that, that, that's been a very successful procedure. Uh, and, uh, I don't know if my AFib will, will recur in time, uh, but for now it, it really has, uh, taken care of my symptoms altogether. Oh, that's great. Well, what advice would you have for other people who are living with AFib and maybe are kind of in a similar situation that you were in where they're trying to figure out how to manage it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I had a couple of pieces of advice, you know, and, and, and one, and, and maybe it's part of the why I, I do things like this, is learn what you can about the illness. Uh, you know, I think we all, you know, the more educated we are about whatever we need in terms of medical care, the better it is, the better you are to ask the right questions when you do uh, interact, you know, with uh, physicians or nurses, or, or you know, have to have to work with the healthcare system, and and then it's it's a matter, I think, of you know, really having detailed conversations with your physician. Uh, you know, what's what? There are a lot of options for how to manage people with atrial fibrillation. Uh, a lot of different drug options. A lot of considerations around stroke prevention. A lot of considerations today about what's the right time if you're going to have an ablation. And what's the right technology to use if you're going to have an ablation? And you know, we we talk a lot nowadays about something called shared decision making, where you know, I, I think you know the days of the past where you know you, you just go in and see a doctor, and the doctor would say, okay, you know, here's what you have, here's what you need, case closed. You know, that that was a different era, mm-hmm. and I, now really important, particularly in something like this where there can be so many different options uh, to go in with your physician, having done a bit of research, and then, you know, to make sure that working together, right, the physician knows your preferences, what's important to you, what's your risk tolerance, and, and then I think jointly to come up with a plan, a course of action. Great. So you talked about how ablation kind of has been the key for you to keep AFib at bay, at least for now. Can you talk about Boston Scientific's AFib management options? What What's available to date? Where do you see the future of pulse field ablation and maybe advanced cardiac mapping? Sure, absolutely. And, and, and you hit on a couple of the, the, the key things. So up until very recently, the only options for doing an ablation procedure was to, to damage the abnormal cardiac tissue with either heat, and that's something called radiofrequency ablation, where you basically burn away the abnormal tissue, or cold, and that's something called cryoablation. You know, and, and, and both of those technologies can be quite effective, uh, but thermal ways of injuring tissue also can cause certain types of complications because it's very hard to sort of keep the heat or the cold only affecting the uh, the abnormal tissue that you're trying to ablate. And so there, there's always a risk of damaging adjacent structures. Now, we uh, have a RF, a whole suite of RF ablation catheters approved in the United States. Uh, in Europe, we have a radiofrequency catheter as well as what's called a cryocatheter. Now, that's a balloon catheter that freezes tissue. 
approved. And we recently finished enrollment in our U.S. trial for that catheter and, 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 and are hoping to submit that data to the FDA shortly. Uh, but what's really, I think, people got me very excited is this new technology that you referred to, which is called pulsed field ablation. And what's different about pulsed field ablation is that it's a non-thermal way of affecting cardiac tissue. And by doing pulsed field ablation, we're actually, if, if it's done well, you can be tissue selective and avoid then some of those non-cardiac collateral damage structures that, that you can get with thermal types of ablation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, almost a decade ago, uh, we invested in a very early stage startup that is called Farapulse that really has led the whole field of pulse field ablation for the treatment of cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, we uh, ended up consummating that deal, I guess, maybe a little bit over a year ago at this point. Uh, and uh, so now part of Boston Scientific technology is approved uh, in CEMAR countries. So it's available in Europe where approximately 7,000 patients have always already been treated commercially with the system. Uh, in the United States, looking towards submitting to the FDA for approval, uh, we ran a large randomized clinical trial where we hit uh, the Farapulse system head-to-head against thermal energy sources, both radiofrequency and cryoablation, uh, enrolled you know, roughly 650 patients in that trial. We're in the follow-up phase of that right now uh, and uh, hope to submit that data to FDA uh, some point next year. And, and again, uh, you know, hoping that the results are going to support approval and, and looking forward to, to bringing that technology to use for benefit patients in the United States. So you mentioned that it already received uh, the CE mark, so it's approved uh, for marketing in, in Europe. When do you think would this technology potentially be marketed here in the U.S., of course, given FDA clearance or approval? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, hoping uh, again, hoping the randomized data will support approval. Uh, we finished enrollment in that trial earlier this year. It's a 12-month follow-up, again, so we can get the data on both safety and efficacy. And so, you know, would anticipate submitting it to the FDA next year, and then, you know, it's it's in the hands of the FDA. Yeah. It all depends on, uh, on 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 what the data show. But if it's approved, when would it be available on the U.S. market? Do you think? Well, I, I'd say you know, we're, we're, we would be targeting availability in 24. Okay, 2024. And then, can you just briefly talk about? You said, is it a more targeted therapy then than? Than in using uh, heat, and then what does pulse field ablation mean exactly? Yeah, uh, let me start with what it means, and, and then maybe get to the the, the the targeted. It's intended to be tissue selective, and and so you know, more targeted in the sense that it it, it really again with done with the right catheter design and the right energy waveform and the right dosing strategy, it, the impact would be limited to heart tissue. Uh, so you can say more targeted in that sense. Uh, and, and what it is, is basically a very high voltage, rapidly alternating electrical field that's delivered again via a catheter in the heart. And uh, what that does is actually that, that kind of high voltage field can cause the surfaces of the cells in the heart, the cell membranes, actually develops small holes in the cells. And that's a 
process that's called electroporation. Uh, and if you cre- create enough holes and they're big enough, that electroporation can be irreversible. And if you get irreversible electroporation, then those cells that you're targeting die right, and lose function. Uh, and, you know, it just turns out to be the case. And, you know, I mean, there are, there are biological reasons for this, but it really just turns out, you know, from our standpoint, to be a you know, lucky finding, right, that that heart tissue is much more susceptible to this irreversible electroporation than other types of tissue in the body. Mm-hmm. And that's why if you dial it in correctly, right, you're able to give, you know, these lesions from a catheter inside the heart and only impact the heart tissue around where your catheter is and not really have any risk of damaging any surrounding structures. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean long-term, though, for patients potentially? Or what have you seen from the patients yeah. that have been treated in Europe? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the goal of it really is threefold, right? And, and so the first goal is just to be safe. Uh, again, by, by avoiding injury to any surrounding structures, the, the belief is that this ought to be safer than other energy sources. Uh, and we've already reported data out of our commercial experience in Europe where we really are, are not seeing some of the most feared complications that you can get when you do ablation with either radio frequency or, or cryo-energy. So, so the first issue is, is safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second hope is that because you can avoid some of these complications, there are certain areas in the heart where it can be very difficult to do ablation with radio frequency or cryo because of the risk of dead collateral damage that you can now target with pulse field ablation. Right? And, and, and so I think the hope would be that this will be at least as effective and hopefully more effective than using radio frequency or cryo energy. And, and then the last thing, it just turns out with the Farapulse system, it's a very straightforward system to deploy. And because of that, these procedures turn out to be really efficient. Uh, what we've seen in Europe, at least if you look at sort of the published data, uh, once people climb the learning curve, these procedures take on the order of 30, 35 minutes. And, and if you look sort of historically at what they take using other energy sources, you're typically talking about procedures that last at least an hour and maybe more like an hour, hour and a half. Uh, and, and so speeding up the procedure you know, again, as long as you're safe and as long as you're effective, right, that, that's got benefits for everyone. That, that, that's got benefits for patients. You know, the, the less time you're undergoing a procedure, the less things go wrong. Uh, but it also has some important implications just in terms of procedure workflow. Uh, AFib is the most common sustained arrhythmia that there is in general practice. I, I almost hate using this word, but it is pandemic. And Honestly, without improving aspects of workflow, it's just we don't have the ability to bring ablation to the number of patients who are going to need it over their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about advanced cardiac mapping as well, which is an evolving technology as far as I understand it? Yeah, so so a second part of ablation procedures, and, and it depends a bit on the arrhythmia that, that you're targeting, is, you know, is, is, is knowing where to go. You know, there's, there's, do we have the technology to ablate when, when we're ready to ablate? But there's also 
the where do we want to ablate. Right? And, and depending on the arrhythmia that we're trying to treat with ablation, and atrial fibrillation you know, is probably the most common arrhythmia targeted ablation, but it's by far and away not the only one. Right? You, you may need to actually do some very sophisticated mapping of a patient while they're in the arrhythmia to figure out where is the abnormal tissue, you know, where where do we want to go go, go ahead and ablate. And so we, I think now, are right about at the 10-year anniversary of acquiring a company that was called Rhythmia that really revolutionized the whole field of cardiac mapping in terms of being really the first and, in our minds, still the best system that can do very high-resolution, very high-definition mapping of the arrhythmia. And you know, to, to do these maps, you really you know, do need to take a catheter, again, and, and manipulate it within the chambers of the heart so that you can map the electrical activity of the heart onto the geometry of the heart. And you know, particularly for complex arrhythmias, you know, understand right, what, where within the heart is this arrhythmia occurring, where is the abnormal tissue, and, and where ought I to, to, to do my ablation. You know, for, for some types of atrial fibrillation, that really is not necessary. For instance, if patients who have a kind of atrial fibrillation called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, where, where it comes and goes, particularly if they don't have a lot of other cardiac disease, you know, typically all that we want to do is ablate around the regions where the pulmonary veins, the veins that drain blood into the heart from the lungs, enter the heart. But, but as you get, again, in, in, into more underlying heart disease, or as you get into maybe more complicated arrhythmias than paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, there is often a need to get a really detailed map of the electrical activity in the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we, again, we, we purchased Rhythmia about a decade ago, and we've been continuing to iterate and improve the system since then. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what are your proudest moments, would you say, having been the CMO yeah. for 13 years, and then maybe some of the biggest challenges? Sure. Well, some of them are related. I mean, 13 years is a, it's a kind of a long time in a role like this. I love it. Uh, I, I think, you know, first of all, I, I, you know, came from academic medicine and, you know, worked, worked with a lot of smart people when I was, uh, when I was on faculty at Cornell. Uh, but I, I really, from every day since the day I joined the company, had just really been blessed to, to work with a bunch of folks who are really smart, but also are really mission driven. And, and, you know, really are, are focused on, you know, what can we do to bring truly meaningful innovation to, to benefit our patients? It's just, it's a joy coming in to work with them every day. The, you know, the 13 years, you know, we've, we've brought a lot of new technologies onto the marketing and things like Rhythmia that I told you about. Um, hopefully someday in the future, I'll look back and say that Therapulse pulse ablation is, is one of my proudest moments. I think one of the others, we talked a little bit about stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. Uh, and uh, shortly after I joined the company, we acquired uh, a startup called Atriotech, uh, that it was really the company that developed the, the Watchman left atrial appendage closure device. Uh, and getting that device through FDA panels and approval and, and through a, a, a Medicare, Medicaid national coverage decision, uh, I think it's, it's something that I'm really always going to look back at and, and, and be very proud about because that's 
that's a device that has really meaningfully improved and, and extended the lives of a, of a lot of patients. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, in previously you were a professor at Cornell and obviously you've been surrounded by uh, experts and, and highly intelligent people, but who's the most influential person in your life, would you say? Oh, gosh. I, you know, it, I, I'm going to try very hard not to give a cliché answer. It, it's, uh, it, I, I don't know that I can avoid it, though, because it was me and my, my parents. You know, they both now, now passed away. Uh, my dad was a physician, uh, and my mom was a school teacher. Uh, and, and I always said, you know, when I was... Uh, Again, when, when, when I was on an academic faculty, that I had sort of followed both of their career paths. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I, I still try every day to live up to the, the, the values that they instilled within me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, again, I hope that's not too much of a cliche answer, but it's true. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Where were you born and raised? Sure. I, I was uh, born and raised in, uh, in in New York on Long Island, where my dad had his practice. My, my dad was a uh, a family physician at a solo practice, uh, really kind of the last of a last of a breed. Um, at this point, uh, went uh, uh, went to a public high school. I'm probably not, not you know nothing too remarkable about about how or where I grew up. Uh, uh, so, uh, just, uh, I think again, you know, lucky to, uh, to have had great parents and, uh, I got a, uh, a sister, uh, who was a, uh, was a law professor and a, a brother who's another physician. And, uh, I think, uh, we, uh, uh, again, we're, we're all very thankful for the way we were raised. Um, yeah, it sounds like, uh, a medical career runs in your veins. So, are there any must-read books that you would recommend for executives, like in a similar position, or you know, people who are just starting out, maybe following your career path? Well, I'm, I'm going to start not with a book, but maybe just just a piece of advice if for for people who are thinking of going into a medical role, yeah, in business, uh, because I do think that's very different than sort of the typical executive career path. And, and I remember when when I was being interviewed for this job by by the, the guy who was the chief medical officer for Boston Scientific at the time. It was a doctor called uh, Dr. Don Bain. And, and I went in to get interviewed, and I literally hadn't even made it all the way into his office. I still had my hand on the doorknob. And he looked up at me, and, uh, and he said to me, Stein, you have no idea what a chief medical officer does, do you? And I, you know, there's that moment of terror where you just think, am I, <laughs> am I going to try to fake my way out of this or not? And I decided not to. And I, I said to him, no, you know, Dr. Dane, you're right, I don't. I kind of thought I had just blown the whole interview. I thought, thought it was over. But, but what he said to me, and I really do think this is important, and I, I repeat this story to everyone who talks to me about making the transition, is he said, your role is to be the voice of the patient within Boston Scientific, you know, and, and to make sure that everything we do meets a real patient need. Uh, and he went on. He said, you don't know anything about business. We know you don't know anything about business. We've got a lot of MBAs in this company. Hopefully they do know something about business. 
right? But, 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 but your role is to bring what you know as a physician. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've tried to take that advice to heart. I, I think it's really important advice. And, again, maybe the, the advice I give for other people who are looking in, you know, to making that kind of transition into a chief medical officer type role is, you know, again, you're never going to know more business than the CEO, but you are going to know more 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 medicine than her or or, or him. And you know the, the the you know the the goal here is to make the same kind of decisions in this role that you would want made as a patient getting one of our devices, or that you would want made as a physician looking to use one of our devices. So you know I, that that's that's not a book, but. Uh, but I think it's I think it's really important advice. Yeah, and I think it's also a, a great bridge to to the next question. So, what are you looking for now when you're hiring talent? Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of different things. It, 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 you know, it, and I said that maybe a little bit even not when I'm not when I'm just looking at doctors, but it's you know, smart I think is is a given, uh, but it's got to be more than smart, right? It's it's people who have, again, the same values that we have as a culture within Boston Scientific. You know, it's, it's, it's being patient-centered. It's, it's you know, having an eye towards meaningful innovation for patients. Uh, and it's also an ability to work collaboratively with others, uh, right? You, you know, uh, th- there are no successes in, in this kind of job that are individual. Right. Every success is a, is a team success. And, and I want people who are, uh, I guess have that, uh, makeup, right? Where, where, where you can work well with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think the last thing is, you know, people who have the, again, able to disagree constructively. You know, I, I, I want people to tell me when I'm wrong. Uh, and, you know, that, uh, courage, I guess. Right to to have an opinion, but then again, at some point, everyone needs to be able to fall behind and support whatever decision gets made. Yeah. Um, you know, the pandemic obviously has changed our work culture, our own priorities, and I just kind of wanted to hear from you how it's changed the work culture at Boston Scientific, or the way you work and your team work, and then what it meant for your own priorities. Well, I'd say we've certainly moved towards a lot more hybrid work. And, you know, you know within what my team does within Boston Scientific, I, I think it, it's, it, you're able to do that in a hybrid mode very well. And I, I do want to be respectful of, you know, those folks whose jobs didn't allow them to work from home or to go hybrid. Uh, and, you know, the, the folks that we have, for instance, providing technical support for patients undergoing procedures in hospitals, you know, they, they were through the whole pandemic. They were, you know, I mean, literally, you know, going in, you know, uh, in, 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 into quote unquote combat, you know, and, and putting themselves at risk to be able to support our patients and, and, and continue doing that. Uh, again, you know, the folks in our plants making our devices, mm-hmm. again, you, you, you can't stop making pacemakers just because there's a pandemic. Uh, and again, so they were going into work every day. Through the worst of COVID, and I, I think we we owe them a a huge debt of gratitude, really, for for doing that. Uh, 
in, in, and in some ways, I mean, COVID obviously was a terrible thing. I don't want to imply otherwise. But some aspects of it, I think, strengthened our culture. You know, we're able to to show, you know, what one of our values and core values within Boston Scientific is we, we call it the caring value. Uh, and, you know, we did pull together a team very early in the pandemic to be able to reach out to employees, to answer their questions uh, about how to keep themselves safe, to formulate policies so, again, we could keep our field staff safe, so we could keep the people in our plants safe. Uh, and and I, I do think that, you know, that, that, that people really ended up appreciating the, the efforts that we made Again, to, to really do everything that we could to, to keep everyone within the company as safe as possible through the pandemic. How has it changed our own priorities, would you say? Yeah, I don't know that it's changed priorities. I think it's changed maybe you know, the way I go to work. And uh, so, you know, it clearly, you know, don't need to spend as much time in the office as, uh, As I would have previously, I'm, I'm taking this call right now from the basement of my house. Uh, and I think, you know, able to be a lot more, you know, understanding, respectful, right, of, of other team members. Uh, you know, maybe if, if I went back pre-pandemic, you know, and was looking to hire someone, uh, I would have been more apt to want to hire, say, a new medical director who actually lived or was going to relocate to the Minneapolis area, which, which, which is where our office is. I think today we've learned you don't need that. Uh, and I am completely comfortable hiring folks, you know, wherever they are in the country, you know, still need to get face to face every now and then and still need to be, be, be willing to travel into the office as needed. Uh, but, you know, I think a, a lot more willing to accept people who are, are living, working remotely. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you um, one last question. You know, we're, we're heading into potentially a recession. I mean, everyone is kind of worried about the economy. And how do you deal with making tough decisions such as, you know, whether to keep a program running or maybe cutting it? And what advice do you have for other leaders in executive positions and how to deal with these, you know, tough decisions? Sure. And, you know, we, we face a lot of macroeconomic pressures now. Uh, it's, it's a really un, unusual time, you know, in between coming out of the pandemic, in between, you know, it's probably the, the largest ground war in Europe since World War II, uh, and then all of the varied supply chain pressures. Uh, you know, and, and right as a publicly traded company, you know, we, we do have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. But, but the way I look at it, you know, sort of, My, my, my fundamental responsibility is to make sure the shareholders, right, have, are, are getting a return on their investment over the long run. And I still think, right, the, the best way you maximize return to our shareholders over the long run is to maximize and do what's, what's right for patients over the long run. Uh, and I, you know, one, one of the things, you know, that maybe you, you have as a privilege in a position like mine, that you may not have if you're a sales leader, say, right, is, is I would say, not just the ability, but the obligation to take a longer view. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's just a look behind, beyond this quarter, right, 
and, and look to, you know, where do we want to be in three years, in five years, in ten years? Uh, and, and so I still think, you know, as we prioritize things, right, it's take care of people within the company. You know, as I said, we've got some really smart, really committed people, and we want them to stay with us for the long run. Uh, and then it's keeping an eye on, you know, what are the programs that are going to bring the most value uh, in terms of improving patient well-being, patient outcomes over the long run, and and make sure that we continue to, to fund those to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for others still in, in terms of making tough decisions? Well, again, I think, I think it's those two things. It's, you know, protect the people and keep your eye uh, on the long run. That, you know, uh, if, if, if you're always making your decisions based on short-term considerations, Right, then you're never going to end up where you want to be in the long run. Mm -hmm. Let me just finish by thanking you for the conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. And thanks again for your time, Dr. Stein. All right, thank you.